Welcome, everybody, to the debut of Racket Star Radio with Andy Zoden and Greg Peck. And we will be talking racket sports. I know that comes as a shock. Greg Peck, former number one player in the world in racquetball back in the glory days of racquetball. And Greg, I'd like to start by saying how excited I am to be working with you on this project. It's been a long time. And back when you and I were kind of hanging out a little bit, you were at the height of your powers uh, in your racquetball days. Yeah, good to be with you, Andy. Look forward to talking racquetball and maybe a little tennis, too. Definitely like to get to some tennis today, but I'd really like to take a look back at your career playing alongside your brother, Dave. You guys really, along with some other star players in the sport, kind of took racquetball by storm back in the late 80s and, and early 90s. Talk about what it was like back in those days, because it seems to me, based on what I've seen of the sport in the past couple of decades, that you guys really do kind of represent the glory days of the sport of racquetball. Yeah, everybody looks back on the 80s and uh, early 90s as the heyday of racquetball. I was fortunate to be a part of that, and, and um, it was it was a time when the sport was really growing. Uh, clubs were were being built all around the country with 15 to 20 courts at a time, and there were sponsors like Nike and uh, Perrier and uh, Catalina and uh, Leach Racquetball and Echelon Racquetball that were we're heavy into the game, and, and like I said, I was fortunate in that uh, there was a lot of investment in the sport at that time. And, again, you know, the heyday of racquetball with players like Marty Hogan, who really transformed the game, and my brother, who, who took it to another level as far as stroke mechanics and shot selection, and Dave is seven years older than me. And so I started playing when I was 12, and of course he started playing when he was 19. So he was a little bit older, you know, for most racquetball players to start playing. And so, like I said, I was fortunate that Dave kind of was the trailblazer for me and uh, just made sure that, you know, my stroke mechanics were correct and that I was playing a smart game. And so I got the benefit of, uh, of, of playing him all the time and being around him. And then also just, you know, he was at tons of tournaments. And so, um, I would I would go with him to those tournaments and I'd play the C C level or novice and then just kept getting better and better and finally got to a point where I could get on tour and play. One of the things that I noticed in those days, Greg, you're a big guy yourself, so is Dave, big bone guy, strong as an ox, Marty Hogan, big guy. It seemed like the bigger guys in those days were at a distinct advantage. Would you say there was a certain physicality about the sport that put guys that were built like linebackers at a, at a bit of an advantage? Yeah, I, I think the difference that, that racquetball uh, is than tennis or maybe squash or, or other racket sports is that uh, you want to be somewhere between 5'10 and 6'2. That seems to be the, the, the premium height. And you have to generate a lot of your own power because the, the rackets aren't long like a squash or tennis racket. So by having to generate your own power, you have to have pretty strong legs, you know, strong upper body. And so you would see most racquetball players have big, thick legs and, and a big upper body to generate the power. Whereas if you look at tennis players or maybe squash players, they're a little leaner, taller, not an isner, but somewhere around six foot, six two is really a good height for racquetball. You get a little bit of the length without being too tall. And that becomes a challenge when, you know, I played some guys that were six, four, six, five, and you hit, you hit a lot of angles into their feet and they just really struggle with that. So, yeah. 
Let me ask you this, Greg. When we talked before, you know, I kind of was asking, well, whatever, you know, kind of happened to these guys, you know, the Marty Hogans of the world and, and, and there were so many great names back in the sport. I got to know Doug Cohn a little bit and Brett Harnett from out in Las Vegas. But now these guys seem to have moved on with their lives, but they're still connections to the sport in various different ways, but, but not what people might necessarily think. A lot of the, the top players have, have stayed in the game, uh, just from, a playing some of the masters and senior events. And there's also what's called a CPRT tour, which is classic pro racquetball where guys like Hogan and myself and Dave and uh, some of the top players from the, the good old days, so to speak, are still playing these tournaments. And there's about 10 of them a year, you know, and they're more fun. I mean, they're still competitive and there's still, still some money involved, but uh, it's mainly just, just uh, getting together and, you know, the fans really like seeing the old guys still play, even though it's not at, at the highest level, they still enjoy watching. And then the other thing that's kind of neat is that um, uh, the outdoor racquetball game has really uh, started peaking. And a lot of the old uh, 80s guys that I competed against are playing some of these outdoor tournaments out in Florida and California. And then there's a big national tournament in Las Vegas uh, at the Stratosphere, and that is a combination of racquetball and handball. So they're doing outdoor racquetball and a handball nationals event in Las Vegas, and that's that's a huge event. So there's a lot of these uh, racquetball players that back when I was playing are still involved in the game in different ways. And you were even mentioning that some of them have gone to pickleball, which is, of course, a very fast-growing sport in this country right now. Yeah, you're seeing, uh, especially the guys that are, you know, in their 50s and, and some of the guys are, are in their early 60s, pickleball's just a great workout, and yet it's not as hard on your body as, as racquetball is. And so you get a lot of guys who are playing some racquetball and some pickleball, and they're mixing that in as just something different new and fun, and uh, I, I know you're familiar with how fast that sport is growing, and, and you'll see a lot of racquetball players, even open or lower-level racquetball players who are picking up pickleball because it's such an easy transition to that game. And the other thing that you get that outdoor racquetball is providing as well is, especially in places that you know have good weather, uh, a lot of people are getting outside and playing pickleball. So it gives you an option from playing indoor and racquetball to going outdoors and playing pickleball. It's amazing how many how many sports have kind of branched off from tennis and racquetball and squash, and we're seeing so much popularity in the racket sports world. Greg, before we change gears, I do want to ask you, because I know that you got a lot of fans out there that watched you and your brother play back in the heyday. What was the best moment of your career in the pros? What, what did you do that you just, that you, when, when you're bouncing your grandkids on your knee, you're going to go, well, your grandfather once did what? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, I would say my best year was 1985, and uh, I I was able to uh, be I was player of the year in 1985. I won the DP Nationals, which was the largest prize money uh, tournament of the year. And uh, interestingly enough, the about three weeks before the DP Nationals was the Ectalon Nationals, which was televised on ESPN. So that was pretty cool to, you know, obviously be on for the finals of the, the ESPN Ectalon Nationals. But I ended up losing in that event in the finals uh, in the in the fifth game tiebreaker 
to a guy named Cliff Swain who went on to win about 10 national championships after that. But that was, that was extremely disappointing, obviously. But then uh, I rebounded three weeks later and won the DP Nationals, which was the premier event. I bounced back and won that event, and I beat Mike Yellen, who was the number one player at the time, in the finals. And uh, so that was my best memory uh, was, was winning that event. All right, you're listening to Racket Star Radio with Andy Zoden and Greg Peck. And, and Greg, I want to make mention of, of Wilson Racket Sports because they've been such a great partner for us. And they have made such an amazing quantum leap in capturing market share. And I, I couldn't help notice what I saw in Australia with all of their technological advances and cosmetic advances. So not only are they looking at the sport and seeing where the pain points are and trying to solve those for players on the professional tour, as tennis would have it, but they're doing it from a cosmetic standpoint so that it's got eye appeal. And I think they really made a breakthrough in Australia last year that you couldn't help but notice. You had uh, the blade line, which was uh, predominantly black and green. A lot of the great players using that. And, of course, all of the, the high-performance juniors and college players uh, and a lot of the pros wanted to play what Roger Federer plays with, which is that Federer pro staff. The burn line had the beautiful orange and black cosmetics. Uh, the ultra line used by guys like Feliciano Lopez with the black and blue. So you had different colors for eye appeal. You had different head sizes and composites, which gave players of all levels something to play with. And then, of course, for them to become the endorsee of the United States Professional Tennis Association just this last year and to partner up with us. And I say us because I'm the actually, believe it or not, the incoming president of USPTA Intermountain, which just shows how how desperate they are out here in the Rocky Mountain area, but somehow or another they tapped me. Have you seen something similar from Wilson Racket Sports as to what I described on the racquetball side of this thing? Yeah, they do a really good job of taking their new technologies and making them look good too. So, you know, if you if you look at any high end company that's doing good things these days, it's it's like cars as well. I mean you have to you have to have performance in, in the cars, but they have to look good and right. the, the colorations have to look good. And so you're seeing that from Wilson as well, and I, I just think that's why they're making such great strides. Well, we're looking forward to a partnership with Wilson Racket Sports with Racket Star Radio. And and I know that before we came on, you're like, be sure before we sign off today, let's chat a little bit about tennis, because you obviously were watching a little tennis in 2017. Yeah, 2017 and tennis was, was just, I would call it a crazy year. It was It was really fun to watch. I mean, you have Roger Federer, who's 36, who – was hurt for, you know, basically six months, comes back and wins the Australian Open. And, you know, Nadal, he's 31, playing some of his best tennis ever and got the number one ranking back. I mean, what are your thoughts on on what 2017 was all about in tennis? Well, it was exactly what you said. It was all about Federer and Nadal. You know, Federer, as you mentioned, he comes off of, uh, you know, a six-month injury layoff. And he had really never, you know, we'd seen that from Nadal, time and time again where he would get hurt, you know, the knees would give out on him a little bit, the physicality of his game lent toward injury. But he was, uh, you know, strong enough uh, between the ears to do what he needed to do to bounce back. And so Nadal's had, you know, two or three comebacks. We'd never really seen that from Roger. So to see him come back from six months off and then to be the number 17 seed at the Australian Open, I think maybe his hopes 
mild, modest at best of what he might be able to do. I think he hoped to uphold his seating. Of course, when Roger Federer steps out on a tennis court, he can say what he wants. I think he expects to win. But to be able to go out there and win that tournament the way he did, to come back from 3-1 down in the fifth set against Rafael Nadal, who he had always had trouble with. He you know, basically lost 65% of the matches that they had played lifetime going into that one. To win that final really made all of us look at what 2017 might be, but we could have never expected him to go out to then Indian Wells, beat Nadal again, Miami, beat Nadal again, win both of those. That doesn't happen. You don't win both of those hardcore events back-to-back. He was smart enough to pump the brakes a little bit, didn't play the French Open. Of course, who wins it? Rafa. For the 10th time, Greg, Rafael Nadal wins the French Open for his 10th time. That might be one of the greatest single grinds in any sport anywhere is to win a French Open, let alone more than one, let alone 10. So now it's on. Now you've got this race for number one. Djokovic and Murray are having issues with their health, as is Stan Wawrinka, as is Kei Shikori. A lot of these guys are coming and going, so that really opened up the door for Nadal and Federer to have this this horse race that tennis fans for the life of them could have never seen coming. Then they go to Wimbledon. Well, of course, that's that's pretty much Roger's backyard. And he wins his eighth Wimbledon and his 19th major. I guess Australia was 18, so Wimbledon was number 19. So we kind of thought this guy might be done at 17. Now he's sitting on 19 majors as we go into the hard court season. And, of course, he would have his hopes dashed of winning uh, his 20th major when he would lose that epic semifinal to Juan Martin Del Potro, who had beaten him in the U.S. Open final in 2009. And then Del Potro would go on to lose to Nadal in that final. So it came down to Roger winning two majors, Australia and Wimbledon, Nadal winning two majors, the French in the U.S. Open. They finished number one and two in the world. They're the closest of friends, even though they are tremendous combatants uh, against one another on the court. They are absolute warriors between the lines and great friends and ambassadors for the sport of tennis. So to see the resurgence of Federer and Nadal to the extent that we did, I really think spoke volumes to the whole tennis is the sport of a lifetime narrative. And and you got to throw Venus and Serena Williams in, particularly Venus this last year. Of course, Serena was out for much of the year having her first child. But for Venus to come back from Sjogren syndrome and some of the things that she dealt with at age 37, talk about the matriarch of women's tennis right now, was also a sight to behold. She didn't win any majors, but she made it to the finals at two and uh, way outperformed her expectations, outkicked her coverage a bit, if you will. You know, one one thing I'd love to get your take on, Andy, is when you see Federer and Nadal and you review 2017, uh, those guys were physically fit, I think fitter than they've ever been. And then you look at Serena, they all look like they have taken fitness to another level. And I think that's why at their age and the point in their careers that they're at, that they're still able to have success. And I would, I would love to get your take on that because it just seems like they're playing fewer events, but they're, of course, the majors. And then they play three or four tournaments before those majors to stay and, and get in tip top playing shape. Well, it's funny because, again, you know, you, you couldn't be more right on the money. And I couldn't help but notice when Roger came back in particular, you know, he was always a pretty ripped 
muscular athlete, but he really even looked a little bit more jacked this year. And I don't mean like from the standpoint of he needs to, you know, be tested or anything like that. He just, you could tell he worked on his legs. I mean, his calves were just bulging and you could just tell that he was doing everything he needed to do, not to just come back to where he was, but to come back beyond where he was with respect to being able to protect that knee and make sure that it could endure the physicality uh, that the sport has evolved into right now. So I think what you're noticing is right on the money, which it doesn't surprise me that you would, you know, having done what you, you guys did back in the day. But the fact is, is that it's, it's something that we're teaching our kids nowadays. We're, we're talking about athletic training. It's a great thing to see because it's taking hold of the sport as a whole. So now what we're going to see is that whole 35 is the new 25 mentality because of how seriously these people are taking their fitness. You know, John McEnroe in, in his book wrote, you know, that while he was eating Haagen-Dazs ice, ice creams, Yvonne Lendl was riding his bicycle in the Rocky Mountains up the hill backwards, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. Right. You know, and it was guys like Lendl and Jim Courier working with trainers like Pat Echeberry back in the day that started this fitness craze. And people started to realize, you know, it's one thing to become a great player. It's another thing to be able to get to that point and stay at that point. And even these players that are doing their very darndest to stay as fit as they possibly can are still realizing that, you know, injuries are still going to happen to the very most fit and finely conditioned athletes. But what you saw in 2017 was the time in the gym and the time off court really paying off for these athletes that would be otherwise presumably in the twilight of their career playing at a level uh, of a player in their, in their prime. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting too, that uh, I think back to when I was playing professional racquetball and one of the things that was the toughest and, and there's, there's professional players that, you know, call me or I talk to at tournaments and they, they ask my advice and, one of the things that I always tell them is make sure that you're mentally fresh too. Obviously you want to be physically fresh when you walk into a tournament, but you want to be mentally fresh too. And, um, I, I had my system that, that kind of got me ready for the big events. And, and I mean, I would put, I, the last time I would play would be the Sunday before the tournament started, which would be on a Thursday. And then I would not play on or touch a court on Monday. On Tuesday, I would go hit for about 45 minutes by myself on the court, just practice and, you know, get, get grooved in and hit some balls and just, again, stay fresh. And then I would not play Wednesday. I would travel Wednesday early, get to the facility early on Wednesday and be ready for my matches on Thursday so that I would be, I hadn't played really since Sunday. So I would be excited to, to get on the court and compete and play. And you could tell when Roger came back after that six-month layoff, he was just having a great time on the court playing. And uh, I think that's something that uh, a lot of professional athletes, uh, when they get into the grind, uh, they think about their body and trying to keep that fresh but sometimes they forget about staying uh, mentally fresh. Well, there's no question about that. And one of the things I didn't uh, address, which you brought up, was that schedule management component, which is exactly what lends toward, you know, fresh mind, fresh body, and an eagerness to hit the court, with, which is what you just uh, alluded to with, with respect to Federer. And we see that with Nadal after his, after his layoffs, is that these guys come back to the court, and, man, it's like, 
it's like getting back into the most comfortable place. It's just like going back into their office or, or their own house or whatever it is, but it's, it's where they feel most comfortable. And when they haven't been out there for a while and you knew that feeling and you managed it well, um, which is to not overdo it. Exactly. Greg, we are about out of time here, but it has been an awesome debut show uh, of Racket Star Radio with Andy Zoden and Greg Peck. And I'm real excited for us to move forward and continue to talk about, you know, what happened back in the glory days of tennis and racquetball and other racket sports, what's going on now, and, of course, what's going to be happening as we move forward in the future. So thanks for uh, thanks for teaming up. This is going to be a lot of fun for me to do with you. Great to be with you, Andy. He's Greg Peck. I'm Andy Zoden. You're listening to the debut of Racket Star Radio, and hopefully you'll be catching a lot more of us as we go forward. Racket Star Radio with Andy Zoden and Greg Peck. 